hello. Hi, Dan. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. How's everything up there? Oh, things are good. Things are real good. Seems like you've been real busy. I've been, uh, you know, keeping track of you on Instagram, and uh, it seems like you're doing a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of stuff. Well, King, yeah, King super, Neptune related stuff. Super busy, super duper duper busy. They, um, this is the big week, right? The big week of Seafair, and uh, so I've got multiple things to do. This morning, I had a break, a breakfast with. Uh, 400 of my closest friends oh. and um, knighted a couple of people, including a, a Medal of Honor winner. Now, when you say knighted, yeah, my only experience being knighted was at a medieval fair when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and I, I was knighted then, uh, but I don't think it was official. Is what you're doing official? Uh, well, official, huh? Like, is this the same as being like knighted in, in the UK? No, 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 Dan, we don't have those powers here because we do not live in a, in a monarchical system. What do you get when you're knighted? Not by you, but in the UK. Oh, well, you get to put letters after your name. Order of the British Empire. But do you OBE? get like a, do you get a stipend? Do you get any kind Ooh, of you know like no. the land or something? No. So there are two kinds, right? Or I mean, there are multiple, multiple kinds. But there are hereditary, uh, like what would you call them? Not knightings, but, um, but like a title. Like you, you could a be a, title, a right. duke or a duchess or a baron or. And in ye olde like times, a lot of those were hereditary, right? You became the, the Duke of Cornflakes, and then your son would be the second Duke of Cornflakes. And that came with land and money and, uh, you know, all kinds of privileges because that was how the, the monarchs kept their, kept their rivals at bay yeah. and kept uh, the system running. But I don't think there has been a, a, a new hereditary – uh, aristocrat in many, many years. And now it's all just sort of united as an honor. It's like winning the presidential medal of freedom, mm -hmm. I guess is mm -hmm. our equivalent. You get it. Okay. You have a, I'm sure there's a medal that you wear at events. You put some letters after your name. You are night. You're, you're recognized by the queen for your service to England. And we do have presidential medal, medal of freedom, which is the same type of thing. You know, you give it to Aretha Franklin or you give it to uh, somebody, right? The inventor of cornflakes probably did not get one, Mr. Kellogg. But right, like right. it's the type of thing I'm sure that Donald Trump will give to uh, the, the Koch brothers and the inventor of, you know, pudding. Right. Now, what happens if, if you knight someone? Same same concept? Like you get like it's like a presidential, yeah, title. Yeah, you get a you get a a, a beautiful certificate that is um, signed by me. You are knighted as you're given a name as part of your title, like uh, the Duke of Pudding and mm -hmm. Cornflakes. Okay, I like this. That that name is not written by me. There is a. There are people at Seafair whose job it is to come up with this kind of 
excitement. And so often my scripts, which I deviate from, are prepared for me. Uh-huh. And the they're and these, the idea of like, you are the Duke of uh, putting in cornflakes. That's was not my idea. That, that was, um, that came from the head office. Right. And you get a medal and, and I think it does have a certain amount of privilege attached to it in that as a knight of seafair, if you called seafair and wanted to do seafair related events, or really just waved your seafarer medallion in people's faces, it would kind of mesmerize them. Mm-hmm. And you could you could get in places, probably. But but really there's so much of our culture that is lubricated by this kind of thing. I mean it, really the Grammy Awards are just as official as the seafarer nighting ceremony in that all it is is a statue agreed upon by a group of people to commemorate that you won a vote of a pretty small group really of of people ultimately that you're the best right you're you're the greatest it's just that a grammy like uh if you put a grammy on your on your uh, mantelpiece it will translate into work for you Right. You're you're going you're now a member of the gang. And if you're a producer, you're going to get more work. And presumably, if you're an artist, you will continue to be respected for a time. The seafare knighting is a thing I imagine that you put on your Web page <laughs> or maybe on your resume if you are. If you don't have a lot else going on on your resume, but you know, like the, the <laughs> I mean, it can't hurt. Honor. It couldn't hurt. Right. Night of Seafair. The Medal of Honor recipient, uh, Bruce Crandall, that we knighted as a Seafair knight today, he probably has an entire room in his house filled with honorary statues and little sort of crystal goblets and pins and stuff that he's been awarded because every time he goes somewhere, they want to give him an award. Right. And you know, like today and he's a hilarious guy and he's like, you know, whatever this is, I didn't do anything to earn it, but thank you. And he, and he did, right. He's a hilarious guy. He's uh, he's active in the community, but really it's just everybody in the room gets to be excited about, giving an award to this man. Uh, and I think that's the case in, in most cases. So I mean, but, how, yeah. how does it get determined that he needs to get it? Or how, I mean, how is it determined that anyone gets them? It's since it doesn't sound like it's up to you. You're sort of a figurehead. I am. I'm a figurehead. Like a, like a, um, a puppet puppet ruler of some kind. Well, no, if I, I mean, I have a list of people that I want to knight, uh, but I, and I'm not sure if I've said this before on the program, but the tenure of King Neptune is a full year. Right. And this this concentrated period of a month around the Seafair Festival is just bananas. Everybody in the Seafair organization is just going 18 hours a day. There are events 
right and left. The Navy is in town. It's a the the people that they want to knight are all sort of community leaders, etc. I mean, I I knighted a three star admiral the other day. Really, like, like he needs it, that, right? He knelt, and no. I said, on, I said, on your knees, admiral. The Medal of Honor winner. Not because he's old, which he is, but because he won the freaking Medal of Honor. I said, sir, you do not need to kneel, nor do you need to bow. It is we who should bow to you. But I don't bow to anyone, so we'll just stand here and look at each other. But uh, but the admiral, I was like, down you go. It's uh, <laughs> the my list of people that I want to nominate or that I want to knight who are leaders in a community, leaders in the various communities in this city that the that the office of Seafair and the office of the Chamber of Commerce and so forth would never have access to. Right. They don't know they exist. I'm not going to try and throw them into some Rotary Club meeting with 15 admirals. It's like when all this when all this smoke clears and the because the seafair people like they have those offices all year long they sit in those offices and they plan this week for a year and i'm hoping that in september october november i can continue to say i you know what i'd like to have a little event where i knight a friend of mine who's done great work in the community and i expect that they are going to say awesome right because it's going to keep seafair active in the in people's minds and it's and so all year long i think i'm going to be handing out these night knighthoods to people i think are interesting and deserving but right now i'm just i'm riding us uh like a log log ride right which is great but you know seafair is a it's a it's a not-for-profit they take no public money. It's all sponsored by corporations. And so like a lot of sort of tourism organizations or festival organizations, it's really unclear. Everything is sort of unclear, but it's a Seattle tradition dating back to 1950. So yeah, you, you've got to do it. It's certainly connected in with all the city animals. But, you know, and I and wh- when I realized there was someone in the organization whose job it was to write my little speeches. You're right, right. I did not jump in there much as I would have liked and say, hey, I'll tell you what, how about if I do that? How about if I write the little speeches? It's not that hard. And sure. It's going to be a lot easier than if I just have to rewrite your speeches. But, um but then it was like, no, 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 this is, this is somebody's, somebody has pride in this and I'm going to read their speeches and I'm going to call these people the Duke of Cornflakes and Pudding and I'm not going to, I'm not going to roll my eyes at it either because this is, this is supposed to be a good time for everybody and it's right. not necessarily like, there's a lot of corniness, but anytime you go to an event like this, there's stuff that somebody from my world would think was corny. Sure. But corny stuff is what people love. They love it. Corny. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'd am i be lying if I wasn't 
a little bit jealous that, you know, because I think, and I honestly think I would like for you to request, this is just an idea. I'd like for you to request that the next King Neptune knight you after your reign as king is done. I was knighted by the last king. Oh, you've already been knighted. It was the first thing that happened. You didn't mention it. Yeah. Um, because the the king thing is temporary, but the knighting is forever. Well, the king thing is forever in, in that having, I mean, a guy came up to me the other day, 85 years old. And he was like, I was King Neptune back in, you know, he was like old King Neptune from yonder day. Yeah. And he sat and regaled me with tales of the old times. He said, you know, back in the day, King Neptune was a King Neptune was someone in their mid to late fifties. And then there was a prime minister who was someone (laughs) in their mid thirties. And then there was the queen who was 18. (laughs) Right. And that was how we did it for years. And then sometime in there, you know, in recent memory, it just was no longer the way things were done that the that the king neptune would be 55 and the queen would be 18 i mean was that so, that was the rule or that's just what kept that's happening that's just how it was it, because queen of seafair was a beauty pageant oh okay is it still right well no that's the thing in 1960 if you were going to have a uh, like a seafair in yeah. place it was a it was an opportunity for a beauty pageant which was very which was a very popular diversion in America for many years. Sure. There were beauty pageants every time uh, you opened a, a new supermarket. But along the way they realized that the queen of seafair should be a local female entrepreneur or benefactor, someone, you know, of stature. And then they invented the role of Miss Seafair. And I think Miss Seafair actually goes back a long way. And maybe it was the queen. Maybe she was always called Miss Seafair. She was treated like the queen. And then they actually invented the job of Queen Alcyone, which is a new position okay. for for a you know for a woman of stature in the community. And then Miss Seafair became a sort of scholarship. Uh, organization where they give a they give scholarships to young women pursuing careers in business and in in my experience almost every miss seafair that i've had any contact with last the former one the new one and everyone who's ever come up and said hello Mm -hmm. uh, they're all asian pacific islander girls Mm -hmm. and each one has a, a whole court and they are they have they almost have a separate royal uh, community, and they do a ton of work for uh, on behalf of this scholarship program right. that I'm I'm you know only vaguely aware of. Anyway, Dan, it's a big it's a lot of work. I so I saw the Blue Angels this morning take off. Now tonight I'm going to a a reception at the aquarium honoring the Blue Angels. Now, did you did you know it was going to be this much work when you signed on, or is it just during this one compressed time period? Like in a month, will you still be doing this many things on no. a Thursday? No, 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 no. At, at the end of this weekend, 
seafare will be over. And in most cases, I think the responsibilities of the king go away. And I think that maybe there's something that comes up at Christmas time where King Neptune shows up for a parade of boats because Seattle has lots of boat parades and there's a Christmas parade of boats, but I'm not going, I'm going to be one of the rare ones that doesn't let it languish. Right. Cause I've got a lot of other work to do in this community. No, I know you do. Once, you know, you get a year of being King. The thing is that there are pirates here. Also a big part of seafare, the seafare pirates completely separate rogue organization of, uh, of like bikers. Right. You kind of mentioned something about the pirates and how they would tear through the town. And yeah, well now the pirates have started sidling up to me at these events and saying, we want you to join the pirates after your tenure of King Neptune. Yeah, you over. need to, I was going to say if n- not that I don't see you as being a good King, but I, f- I feel like a pirate thing would work for you very well. Well, yeah. Um, You're halfway there yeah. just normally. It, traditionally, the seafare pirates were were largely a drinking organization. Oh, I mean, every, okay. They were just like they were very rowdy. They were they were day drunk rowdy. <laughs> and you know, I don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of day drunk in my life anymore. No. So there's got to be a way to be a pirate where I don't have to be out all night with these guys, um, like terrassing through through like bars down by the river. I'd like to, I do. There's a lot about being a pirate that appeals to me, but, but there's an awful, there's an awful lot that, that seems like it would, uh, have a stale beer component that I feel like mm. I've left, left mm-hmm. in my room. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my week. What's going on over in Dan Benjamin world? Well, you know, the, the usual doing shows, writing code, that kind of, uh, that kind of stuff, shows but code. it shows in code. Eating barbecue. Got some probably more more barbecue coming tomorrow. But I do have, you know, uh, we haven't. It's been a while since we did some listener feedback, and I have oh, good. I have some things here if you want to, yeah, to to jump in on that. So let absolutely. Me, I don't really know if I have an order of these things, but uh, I'll just I'll just dive in because there there's. We'll start with this one. There's a listener. I think I say, I think, I think it's a listener, Tori, T-O-R-R-E-Y. Tori. T-O-R-R-E-Y. Tori, yeah. Yeah. So apparently Tori, I always joke I'm an idea guy. I think Tori is actually like getting paid to be an idea guy. Tori is a professional idea guy. Professional guy. And, uh, and he, he wrote in and says, uh, so he wrote in and he explained his long path on how he became a listener, but I will skip over that because it's, it's not necessary for the point of the email. The point of the email is he wrote things that he says he writes, he says, I do this thing where I write 10 ideas a day as an excuse to talk to you, meaning the both of us. I wrote 10 ideas for John. Would you like to, to hear his 10 ideas for you? Uh, 10 ideas. These are ideas, things you could, you could do things you could do. Okay, things I could do. Well, I yes, I'm sitting around right without any uh, without any <laughs> filter between me and what Tori thinks I should do. So right. let's let's hear it. All right, I don't know if these are in a special order, uh, but I'll just throw them out. I'll just throw them out there. Uh, okay. One, write a, a koan. Am I saying that right? Koan. A cone. Cone. A I day. Mean, I, 
I don't know. Okay. Well, I don't know how to say it. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but write one of those uh, a day for a hundred days, record them, give (laughs) them to me, Dan. And, uh, and then you have a 100 episode podcast of just these short, uh, little, little inscrutable poems. Yes. Uh huh. The podcast will be one minute long. I, or yeah, I, he be, didn't say, but I'm assuming it's just that's just a single bite of uh, of John, hundred hundred episode long. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I had one of those, which was my Twitter account, <laughs> right? And you're gone, but it wasn't in it wasn't your spoken word. And I think he's thinking of kind of like a uh, a Tom Waits kind of a thing. I see. I see. I see. I'm reading into it. Okay. Maybe that's just what I want. Uh, two, have Dan Benjamin redo your Long Winters website. Oh, uh, well, hmm. My Long Winters website was recently, well, no, wait, my Wasn't personal re- website. Your personal one was redone, but I don't know about the Long Winters. I'm just reading redone the email. I'm just reading okay. the email. Okay, Dan, are you willing to redo the Long Winters website? I am not willing to do that. I see. Okay, well, that's off the table then. Uh, three, sell merch besides your mug that capitalizes on you being Seattle's third sexiest man of 2006. Now, I like this idea. That seems reasonable, but I would need – see, this is another thing that I think all of this implies, which is a couple of years ago I tried to hire an assistant. It was a process that got sort of hijacked uh, by – I went to a woman I know who is uh, like office manager and I said, I, I'm trying to hire an assistant right. and I, and I need help doing that. Can you help me? And she said, yes. And then she appointed herself, my office manager and then hired herself an assistant. And so for a while I had, a manager and an assistant, and then the manager decided that I was a bad, um, uh, I was an unresponsive boss, and that that was not an environment that she could thrive in. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> and so she left unceremoniously oh. and in a huff, leaving behind her assistant to oh, be really? my new assistant. And so during the hiring process, where we considered numerous applications, I ended up by the initial office manager woman, I was sort of sidelined in the selection process because it was no longer me selecting someone. It, I had already selected her. Right. Or she had self-selected. And now she was hiring somebody that she liked. So then I was – so for another year – And were you sort uh, of saddled with a new person? Well, not saddled because I I enjoyed the young woman who became my my assistant and my um, office manager. I I enjoyed her a lot, and she did a lot of work for me. But what happened was I had big big plans, like Tori has for me. I had big big plans, list of ten things, and it included things like I'd like to make a bunch of merch and sell it. I'd like to uh, put up a store on eBay. I'd like to figure out how to do a, a put put together a Patreon or put together a uh, some kind of crowdfunding for my new record. And I would like to redo my websites and all these things, sure. you know, that are administratively impossible for me to do because I just cannot keep my mind on them and I cannot 
be bothered. And I, I just, you know, I get letters all the time saying you should blank. And and those just aren't my skill sets at all. And what ended up happening was we, one of the things I wanted to do was do that weekly show, a weekly live talk show in Seattle. And so my assistant at the time, whose name was Bailey, she was instrumental in helping me put that show on. And I mean, it was Bailey that got those coffee mugs with my face on them made. Love those primar- mugs. Primarily as a thing to sell at these shows we were doing. But it ended up that this weekly show became a kind of uh, all-consuming project for her. She she stage managed it and all the other stuff that was on our list of things to do all kind of just – you know, it was hard to get uh, as many things done as we wanted because mm-hmm. now we were doing a weekly show, which is not a small thing to do. No. And so after the year of that weekly show, after we stopped doing that, Bailey actually one night just sort of got in her car and drove away. And Bailey is living in some other state now and disappeared for a long time. Didn't, re- you know, disappeared from the internet even. I think she may be back but she was an adventurer she came from colorado uh specifically to be my assistant Mm -hmm. and you know left her life there and and came to seattle and lived here for a year and a half doing that or longer maybe uh it's impossible it's impossible to find good people it really is well, we work closely together, but it was, you know, the the other the other problem is of course that a lot of the income that I would that I would like to generate for this person would be income that would be derived from the projects that we were working on together, right? I mean, the the there is a lot of there's a lot of sense from people and I think Tori has it too, which is that there's there's an uh, a much larger income stream available to me low hanging fruit in the form of running a small enterprise right where i'm selling things and also making things and also most of the rest of his ideas are about what you're talking about now yeah generating content and then giving people the opportunity to either buy or support that content but i need help. I need someone who wants to do it and I want to pay them. And in the case of Bailey, I always hoped that we would make enough, we'd have a diverse enough income stream that we'd be making enough money that she would make a good income. Mm. And what ended up happening was, you know, I did pay her and she ended up moving in with my mom. You know, there was a lot of really, there was a lot of other, uh, you know, we were trying really hard to compensate her. It's just that we never got all these other things off the ground so that, you know, the income that we were making was, you know, it just had, it wasn't enough for Bailey to, to really like thrive the way I wanted her to. And I feel now like I have a lot, even more opportunity than I did three years ago. You know, after Bailey left town, I immediately started running for city council. Oh, so, sure. it's, so, which was a money losing proposition. 
Anyway, so I'm back wanting an assistant, thinking about an assistant, mm-hmm. somebody that wants to, you know, that wants to kind of develop this enterprise. Because really, right now I'm working on music and I'm going to be effectively running a small record label in addition mm-hmm. to, you know, I'll be making music, putting it online, giving people an opportunity to support it. Um, but also, you know, there's going to be rewards uh, associated with supporting it. And that all requires trips to the post office. So, yeah, so I'm, I, I am, I'm, I guess I'm putting out the call again for somebody that is, um, it's fle- flexible and intrigued and able and, you know, and capable and, and located and, in Seattle. Well, are willing to come to Seattle okay. or, or if they want to do this work from afar, I mean, it's certainly negotiable, but they got to be able to go to the post office for you though. Well, or go to the post office from where they're, they are. Right. It's not or, like, or pick up your prescriptions, that kind of thing. I don't need, I don't need that, but the, I think the main, the main stumbling block is that, um, I am not a very responsive boss. Like I don't like getting 14 texts a day about stuff. Right. I like to empower people and say, we need like three years ago or something. I said at some point, like I'd like to have a challenge coin just because, uh, there are uh, 20 opportunities in a, in a typical week to, give someone a challenge coin and it would be fun for them and fun for me. And actually a listener designed a great challenge coin really? for me. Sent sent all the designs. It was a it was a great you know there are a lot of people listening to the program that are artists and, and this program and and Roderick on the line. Designed this great challenge coin. Well, so then it was like I want this challenge coin done. I will pay for it. I would like it made. And there was never, there's the problem is always that in the trigger pulling, I would love to have the ability to say, okay, make it like when the bill comes, Mm -hmm. I will pay it. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens between here's the design. I say, make it. And then they arrive. I don't want to answer any additional questions in that middle part or or make any additional decisions. Like if something comes up, I want to have someone feel empowered that they get to decide, you know, like should it be pewter or should it be full color? You know, I nickel plated. I think it should be full color. Uh, but that's intrinsic to the design because it's a color design. So that's not a, you don't have to come to me with that question. And, And so all, so, so I'm always looking for somebody that feels like they understand what that, um, how to do that, that thing where they feel like it's them, it's their job. They're, they are doing all these things. They're making these decisions, but they know enough in our relationship, like which decisions I would like to make. And I'm clear about what those are, but also that I don't want to. You know, if something happens at the production plant, this is the thing about a good stage manager, Dan. When you're doing shows, 
and you've got a bunch of people and they're all you're, you've got 10 people that are coming on and off the stage in the course of a show. The best stage manager is one that you are not aware of at all until they're standing next to you, hand you a microphone and say, okay, you're on. And you're like, huh? Oh, great. And you walk out and you do your thing. And then when you walk off stage, uh, covered in perspiration and thrilled about your performance, mm-hmm. that person appears, takes the mic from you without you really, without saying anything. Right. Like they just put the mic in their own hand and you're like, huh? Oh, thanks. And then, you know, if they want you somewhere, they move you there and you just, but there are other times when you do shows and there's a stage manager who's standing in the wings shouting and stomping or like whisper shouting and stomping around and like everything's going wrong all the time and you know this needs to be there why is that who are you you know bah! and that just it's the it's bad it's bad stage managing that's not how that feels like show business to people but it's the opposite and it's true in, I, I think, this this dream relationship I'm imagining where the person is – where they are, they're invested in the job and in their relationship with me, but they don't need constant attention. They didn't just come here to do this job because they want to be – they they want to be my friend. Right. Although, that, that's, you know, that's not what you need. You need somebody who's who sees this as an opportunity to sort of lead a new business. Yeah, right. And learn, learn the skills, learn, you know, while I'm learning the skills of running a record company, setting up a, you know, a, um, setting up an enterprise, a small enterprise that's selling a, a variety of goods in a new economy that is partly online. I mean, part of the stuff that I'm, uh, that I want to make, like I'd like to record a song a week and make it available online. But I think that would be a component of some sort of crowdfunding or crowd-supported creative product, right? I would be – I'd be putting songs online. You would have access to those songs if you were a supporter. If you were a a, a supporter at a different level, I would – you know, you'd have access to me giving you a different version of the song or doing a video – you know, of iPhone video of the song or whatever, you know, all this stuff up to and including like handwritten lyrics that doesn't have to be part of a Kickstarter. It can be an ongoing process. Right. Sure. And it's like, there are people that write me all the time and say, I'd like to give you money for what you do. Why do you not, why do you not have any way to do it? Like there's not even a PayPal button associated with me. Right. If somebody just was like, I like him, I want to give him a hundred dollars. I've been listening to him for years now and I want to support him. So I think there are a lot of people out there trying to do this same thing. I talk to artists all the time who are like, how would I do it if I want? And it's like, I don't, man, I don't know. Like record labels don't know. So it would be this opportunity. And of course I would be, of course it would be an opportunity also to, you know, hang out and, and be creative and think of new ways to do stuff and, and get things made. Right. I mean, here I am three years later, I still don't have a challenge coin. I just got a challenge coin yesterday from, uh, from a, a rear admiral. He, uh, which is so far my, 
highest ranking challenge coin. He, we'd done five events together and he walked up and he was like, we know each other now here, you, you know, like shook my hand, did the little palming. Right, the right, right. Challenge coin. Oh, if I had had one to give him back, you know, just like, oh, nice, nice challenge coin, Admiral. How do you like, how do you like them mm. apples? The one this guy made for me, it had a crow on it and a GMC RV. Oh, and man. It had a Latin inscription. It was like, it was a, it was killer, but it just sort of, I don't even know if I could find the file now. <sighs> Because I am not right. You need a person. You need a person to handle that for you. And I have so many people that help me. Bill Brain back east did all this work for me pro bono because he's generous. There are a lot of people that do this kind of work that want to help. It's just we're all busy. You know, you could redesign the Long Winners website, but you don't want to because you're a busy guy. You got other stuff going on. You got barbecue to eat. Merlin Mann designed the original Long Winters website. Yeah. Just out of affection for me. I, I remember I remember I got five hundred bucks together and I was I was so thrilled because I was like, you know, Merlin built this website for me and I got, you know, I found five hundred bucks. I'm gonna give him five hundred bucks. And I was pretty proud of myself because five hundred bucks was not the easiest thing for us to come come across at the time. You know, we were making a hundred dollars a show. And I said to him at one point, I was like, well, you know, Merlin, I, I'd like to pay you for your, for your work. And he said, well, let me stop you right there. I made this website for you because, you know, I'm a fan. Right. And typically for what I did for you, I would charge $25,000. Right. Exactly. It's like, so it, like 500 so you, isn't even uh, in, the, well, in the ballpark. And and so he said, so if you were just about to like say uh, offer me $500, <laughs> uh, it would just be like so out of the realm that it's not even uh, like just don't like don't don't bother. And I was just like I had this $500 in my hand and I just like slowly put it back in my pocket like, oh, wow, <laughs> websites are expensive to build. And that happened a few times, you know, like uh, over the years where I'm like, hey, and I think this is common, right, among web developers that people are like, oh, my, you know, my brother's friend is a web developer. He'll do your website. It's like, yeah, it's my job. It costs a lot of money. <laughs> anyway, so that that's my challenge. And I'm listening. I'm, I'm ready to hear Tori's other. Uh, uh, you hate, you know, you it, you really cover them. To be honest, I don't think we need to spend any more time on this, but you you identified a lot of where where I think he was going. Yeah. Different I, ways. He actually, you know, different things you could do, things you could sell, things you could do. So I think we can move on from his. Email. Well, and I want to do all those things. I would love to wake up every day and, uh, you know, and, and make a, a one minute long YouTube video and right. just be producing content because I like to make content. I do. I like it. I don't want to sit around and just have all my uh, all my deep thoughts go down the, the bathtub drain. But I don't know how to take those comments and put them somewhere on the internet. I just I mean maybe you could just keep don't. a little a little recorder with you. Yeah. And and just record things uh, as they come spilling out of you. Just record them and then maybe you once a week you hand uh, you hand the the card to someone and they give you a new card in return. You pop that into your recorder. They take the old one 
and they spend the time to go through it and anything good that comes out of it, they just act on it. Hmm. You know, a little like take a zoom recorder and a SIM card and, uh, and just go. But even that is more than I am capable of. Like the, the problem isn't generating material, right? Like I don't, I'm not somebody who's walking along and I'm like, I have a great idea. Get my recorder Uh, note to self. Great idea. Send to secretary, you know, um, like if you sit me down in a chair and say, go, I'll come up with something, you know, like I've got a lot of stuff that I could just read. What if you had some, what, you know, these recorders, a lot of them have a, a mode where they only record when there's audio. So if, if, if things are quiet, it's paused. And this minute that you start speaking, it just starts recording it. You could just talk. You wouldn't even need to hit a button. You would have to hit a button once. Maybe the assistant hits the button the first time. And then you just, anytime you're within earshot of the thing, you just start talking. It records it. When you're done talking, it stops. No big deal. Isn't that, isn't that Alexis? I, uh, yeah, but, uh, it, she's not doing anything with it unless you're asking her specific question. She's not recording anything. It's oh. just listening for the keyword where you call her name and then ask her for something. Are you sure about that? Uh, yes. I'm quite sure about it. But you don't think she's recording stuff? Um, only records according, according to the white hat hackers and what Amazon says, if you believe either of those entities, uh, what it's supposed to be doing is not recording or sending any data unless you use the keyword which is its name. And uh, I'm not going to do it because people are using these things. So I'm just mm-hmm. going to say, you'd say computer. Uh, Alexa. Uh, yeah. Start playing black Sabbath. There you go. Now, a lot of people are listening to some music. L- Lol. And uh, you would say something like that. And at that point it would say play black Sabbath. It sends that up to Amazon mothership, their computers, the big brain computers up there, figure out what you want and send the response back down to her and she says it to you. But it's only supposed to be after you use the keyword and only when you ask that question. The rest of the time, it's not listening and sending data up uh, as as far as we have been led to believe. And mm-hmm. whether whether you believe that or not, if you're how, how deep into the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory you want to go, there are people who would say, well, of course, it's not only is it listening, but it's listening and it's sending everything up right to Jeff Bezos's desk yeah. and he's personally listening to everything that, that you're saying. Yep. So, you know, and, and everything in between. Yep. But there are a lot of people uh, that I know who would do not want one anywhere around them because they think that it is listening and sending the data up to Jeff. And yeah. I point out that, well, you know that unless you've manually gone in and disabled Siri on your, uh, phone that it's doing something very similar to which they say, what are you talking about? And I say, and also you better cover up all of the cameras with those little sticky things because your, you know, your nudes are getting sent up to nudes. to Tim Cook at, uh, an Apple too. Yep. Tim Cook's looking at your nudes. That's right. So all well, right. let me, let me, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, Dan, <laughs> that think that the nine 11 was a hoax too. So, a hoax uh, or uh, an inside job? No, a full on just like what like was the it didn't one happen. Uh, that oh, it, it was, happened. That it was holograms. No, that's uh, it happened. 
Well, I can definitely yeah. talk to you about maybe it was an inside job, but I I don't know. I think, yeah. but I'm positive it happened. All right, all right. I'm not going to argue with you. All right. Do you think maybe it didn't happen? No, but I'm okay. not a crazy person. <laughs> all right, I haven't. Th- we ready for the next email? Yes. All right. This one's a short one, and then following this one, we have uh, a more in depth one. But I think it plays very much into your wheelhouse. All right. All right. So this one is by listener Gabriel who says, I think I know what's happening with Dan's knife mix-up situation. Amazon knows what Dan orders. They also know what his neighbors order. Based on what Amazon knows of Dan's location and buying habits of people around, they determine the correct knife for his situation. (laughs) And he says it's obvious. So did you order a knife? No. Ah, I wonder if any of our listeners have done this yet because uh, I bet <laughs> I want to know what they got. All I bet right. They did. And here's the second part of his email, which is more important. He says one more thing. John looks older than his contemporaries because he's calibrated like a baby boomer instead of a Gen Xer. Look at mm-hmm. Marissa Tomei. She's older in Spider-Man Homecoming than some of the Golden Girls when that show started. But she's calibrated Gen X. John, I'm not making this up. John is like Ernest Borgnine or B. Arthur. Different calibration. Mm-hmm. Ernest Borgnine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? Well, what what uh, what's the old um? What, what's the I think the the most famous version of this is is the fact that Wilford Brimley oh cocoon in, right cocoon in the movie cocoon that's <laughs> yeah. right was uh was 50 years old and uh you know what and and was was playing a, a guy that was supposed to be presumably in his 80s right sure um what, how old is Tom Cruise right now? He's older than 50, right? Oh, um, yeah, he is. Uh, Tom Cruise is 55. Right. So Tom Cruise is 55 now. Wilford Brimley was 50 in the movie Cocoon. Mm-hmm. That is what this person is referring to <laughs> right. by calibration, yes, right? Yes. But it is not flattering no, to hear that he's, I – he's not saying something nice. Um, no. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't feel that I'm calibrated – toward baby boomers i just think that my beard went prematurely gray right i think it might be the gray the gray in the beard i agree with you on that i because that's the same thing i told you before like someone guessed my age 10 years off when i had the beard because with all the gray in it and i look back at a picture of me when i was in my 20s and had a beard when it was not fashionable to have a beard and and it was just pure black and it didn't make me look older at all but when you start getting that gray and you grow your beard out you're it adds it adds some age some serious age did you know that tom cruise's last name is mapother 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 thomas cruise mapother (laughs) four is his real name really yeah well i mean you know tom cruise is the greatest 80s film star name of all oh right? yes absolutely and that's actually his middle name that's but his all right. real last name is mapother i'm fine with that 
Yeah. It's also, a, it sounds better. I say use it if it sounds Scientology better. cured his dyslexia too, by the way. Right. Brad Pitt, 53 years old. Johnny uh-huh. Depp, 54 years old. Right. None of these guys are playing 85-year-olds in Cocoon. George Clooney, the oldest, 56. But they're all Wouldn't they're you all like similar. to see Cocoon with, uh, with George Clooney, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, and Johnny Depp as the main guys in it? Well, but I think <laughs> their current think, age looking for the found of youth from alien eggs. I think that the <laughs> other people in the movie, uh, the other people in Cocoon were genuinely old. Like Don Amici was, well, even he was only 72, but like, or no, I guess he was older than that. Hold on. The movie Cocoon came out in 1985. Okay, so Don Amici was older than that, but he was only... Don Amici died in 93 at age 85. So okay. 10 years earlier, he was 70, 70, yeah, uh, yeah he was, he was Seven, 75, 76. He was an old guy. Uh, Hume uh, Cronin, also yeah. in the movie, uh, passed away. Hold on. I'm loading it up. I don't have all this memorized. Uh, he passed away on, in 2003 at, why doesn't it show his age on this? 91. Right. So yeah, they were in their 70s. Yeah. How so would you like genuinely... this little whippersnapper of some 50-year, 40, 50-year-old guy coming in and playing? Uh, that I, I don't know if I would take that part. It's pretty hilarious. You it's look hilarious. You look a good 25 years older than you are. We need you to play this guy. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Wilford Brimley knows where his bread is buttered. Yeah. Right? Like he, he recognized, oh, I'm, uh, I look like this. And so therefore, you know, don't fight it. Right. I think it was Merlin who told me that about his age uh, a while back. I couldn't, I thought he was pulling my leg. I couldn't believe it. And so I, I, think- I went and looked it up and, and yeah, it's crazy. I think Robert Duvall actually is a good friend of Wilford Brimley and discovered him or got him into acting. Ah. Uh, and it's, you know, he's the perfect guy to play a hard bitten old cowboy or whatever. Yeah. I keep waiting, you know, for somebody like Robert, who's my Robert Duvall. That's going to come along and say, we need somebody to play the, you know, the heavy the local bad guy. Did you know that Robert Duvall was, uh, was in the U S army? I think all uh, I assume that everybody from that era was in the U.S. Army. Do you like him better or worse because that he was a private? He, he's a complicated figure. Uh, you know, he. I think he is fairly. I think he is a religious person, mm-hmm. and um, and I don't think he's entirely politically compromised i mean he hasn't like he hasn't pl- pulled a james woods or anything but but leaving robert <laughs> duvall aside let's move on to the next letter well before i do the next email let's say thank you very much to our sponsor today it's mac weldon mac weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now mac weldon believes in smart design premium fabrics and simple shopping and i've used their site I've gone shopping on their site and it's the, it's, that's my ideal shopping experience, going to a website, seeing right away the stuff that they have, 
being able to find the thing that I'm looking for, buying it, and just getting out of there. It's a very pleasant experience. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. And that's, you know what? They're a fun company, but they're really a no-nonsense company. They make it easy to find cool stuff, get it, get out of there. And, uh, you know, they make the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants. This is the most comfortable stuff you're ever going to wear. They even have silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial. They're not silver in color. They have these silver threads woven through them. It means they eliminate odor and super comfortable again. Like, it's the best. And if you don't think so, you order a pair and you don't think it's the best, they're so confident they'll let you keep it. They'll still refund you, no questions asked. You don't like your first pair, you keep it. That's pretty cool. They're pretty confident, and they should be. It's really great stuff. Good for working out, going to work, going out on dates, everyday life, whatever it is, you can do it in Mac Weldon. So go to Mac, M-A-C-K, Weldon, W-E-L-D-O-N, MacWeldon.com, and you're going to get 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK, one word, ROADWORK. So take advantage of this. They make really great stuff. The next time you need a pair of socks, some underwear, a t-shirt, a hoodie, try it. You won't be disappointed in their quality. MacWeldon.com, 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK. All right, this is a long one. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that a lot of the letters we get are long. Yeah, this will be the last one because it's so long. Are you going to read the entire thing? Once I begin, you'll see why I have to. I see. All right. Okay. Hi, John and Dan. I'm here to voice yet another opinion about airport security, but my perspective is a little different. I live oh. in Tel Aviv, Israel, and travel through Ben Gurion Gurion Airport a few times a year. As an avid listener of the program, I've thought about this many times while traveling. Fair warning. This is long, but I think it is germane to the program. All right. Here's the thing about airport security here it's not just about the profiling, it's about layers. Between arriving at the airport and stepping foot on an airplane, you have at least 10 interactions with security personnel who get a good look at you to see if you're suspicious. I'll enumerate the ones I've experienced. 1. On the entrance road to the airport, there's a roadblock with armed guards. You have to roll down your car window and say hi to them before they let you pass. 2. On the entranceway from street level to the airport's building entrance, there's an armed guard standing next to a metal detector. If you look suspicious, they'll tell you to go through it, but most of the time you just walk past them. So you've met at least two security personnel before entering the building. Next. Three. In the departure hall, there are security cameras everywhere. If you look suspicious, someone in plain clothes will walk up to you and ask you what's up. This happened to me once. Uh, Four. At the entrance to the check-in lines, an attendant will ask you, who is also security, will ask you where you're flying to and direct you to the right line. Five. Before check-in, there's a security check. One person will ask you the typical questions, who packed your bags, etc. Uh, they put a sticker on your passport. Or if, they're suspi- if you're suspicious, they take you to a separate area and open your bags. Six, after check-in, before the metal detectors, there's a person who looks at your passport and boarding pass and scans the sticker from before. This is the checkpoint where only passengers can keep going. And then uh, seven and eight, metal detectors, an x-ray for carry-ons. They do not have the rotating cancer machines. Uh, I'm sk- skipping through some of this. Um, one person checks your passport and boarding pass. Another waves you through the machine. Nine. Next is border control. Since all flights are international, they give you a small piece of paper with a QR code. Ten. A security checkpoint for scanning the QR code with an attendant there too. He says there are minimal layers of security you must pass through and is more than I've experienced at any other airport. 
This also isn't counting all the patrol personnel in every open area and all the airport staff who I'm sure have had training in spotting suspicious behavior. I should also mention that none of this feels like a hassle. Every interaction is professional and efficient because no one has the time or patience for random BS. And uh, this is by uh, listener Jonathan. Well, Jonathan, I, uh, I'm sorry that I didn't communicate in our last program uh, everything. I, I thought about it afterwards and in particularly in talking about profiling yeah. that I did a poor job of explaining what I meant. And I was aware of all of that in Israeli security. And I thought that I had implied it, but I, but I feel now like I was assuming that people shared my knowledge of it because we talk about it in America here, airport security. And I think people that are concerned about security theater have talked about what happens in Tel Aviv, for instance, admiringly, right? That, 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 that in America, we already have all those layers. It's just that there's no coordination and there's no sense of it working as a system. Like the police who are out in front of the airport, um, they appear to, they appear to be doing a single thing, which is somebody identified the front of the airport as a place where a truck bomb could go off. Right. And so they have made the fronts of airports extremely difficult to navigate. They've, you know, what used to be just a big four lane concourse where you drive up and drop off. Now there are police cars parked there, cops standing, telling you, you can't wait. Um, it's a, it, it has become a very, uh, congested and poorly run operation. But in the American style, like they're trying to solve for truck bomber. Right. Now, none of the police are charged or empowered to, to even be looking for any other problem. They are basically being told, keep traffic moving. That's your <laughs> right, job. Right. And keep traffic moving even if it makes no sense in this instance. Like here's somebody, they're waiting for – uh, somebody to get off the plane and you're telling them to move along, like moving them along accomplishes only more problem because they're going to get in their car. They're going to try and go 20 feet up and stop again. Right. Um, and so what used to be an efficient process is now a, a frustratingly inefficient process and no one is actually scanning what you're describing. And then you get in the building and there are cops and, are people working behind the counters? All it's all gone to kiosks now. None of those people feel empowered or charged with the job, and they certainly don't see themselves as working in conjunction with the cops out front in a multi-layered process. And right. So sure. the first person you meet is the one who's checking your ID who has any kind of authority in this realm, and that person has been trained to look for fake IDs, I guess. Right. Uh, and even that process is ran. There's this element of like, Oh, what, every 15th one goes beep in a different way and they stamp your boarding pass and now you're going to get extra, but it's all random, right? Because in America it needs to be randomized. And really the people we should be looking for in Seattle are all guys with, with high and tight blonde crew cuts who are wearing 
like sleeveless sweatshirts and listen to Screwdriver. I mean, there are way more potential white supremacist terrorists, Timothy McVeigh's out here than any other group of people. I mean, they sh- they're the ones that we should be the wariest of. But but it, it, it is within the American system a problem of – and I think it's a problem of unity. Like Israel feels under siege, rightfully, so everyone in the country is vigilant to a certain degree. And so – implementing a system where it's like everybody is just kind of looking out. And if you can't pull your window down and say hi to a guy without sweating or without freaking out, yeah, why don't you pull over and let's take a, let's have a little talk. Right. Uh, in the States, it isn't that it's not possible. It's just that we would never think with such a coordinated like program. And that's what's infuriating because by the time you get up – so at every level, it's just as clusterfucked or more clusterfucked by virtue of each one of these groups, of each tier of people doing what they consider to be their job, their prerogative, which is small in scope and the smallness of it right. is, is – because these cops out front that are like move along, they don't see that their job is actually to – to facilitate the smoothest possible operation of this process, not to be agents of chaos in the middle of what's already a chaotic thing. Right. And, and every cop I've ever interacted with at the airport is just like, no stopping. Right. You're like, you gotta (laughs) stop, dude. You gotta stop at the airport. And they're just, they're, you know, and, and, and people are hostile to them all day. So they get a chip on their shoulder. Then they're not friendly. And, and that's what makes it security theater. It makes nothing safer. If you wanted to drive a truck bomb up to that airport, you just drive it up and set it off. You know, it's not, it, truck bombers do not typically drive up, put their flashers on, park, and walk away in a way that a cop could come over and say, hold on, mister, and prevent a bombing, you know? Uh, and so, so that's what makes it theater and it's, and it, and all it is is shit. So that's what I was talking about. And I, and, and I, I appreciate you writing in Jonathan, uh, to clarify that because yeah, it is that, it is that multi-tiered cooperative systematic sense. Like the guy out on the road is never going to talk to the person that's seven layers of security up the stream. But they're all looking for the same thing, which is like something odd, something that isn't right. And so they don't need to put you through a fake radar and they don't need to do all this other dumb stuff because it's like each person kind of just knows what they're looking for, right? Like somebody that's not, that's not cool. And if it, you know, if I was, out front of the Seattle airport and a, and a box truck pulled up with two guys in blonde crew cuts, I would run. Right. Um, and I don't know if that, you know, and I'm not sure whether the cops out there would be like, thank you for your service or whatever. Cause they're just not, I don't know what I don't, I honestly don't know what they're trying to look for besides like double parkers. <laughs> 
Is that really the last? Yeah, that's really the last letter you. You're yeah, it's the last. That's that's the last one I'm going to do today. Right. We get a lot of them that are just sort of. I love the shows. Thank you so much for doing it. And you get these emails too. They come well, to your address. I mean, no, not not always. Some some people I do get nice emails. But I'm saying if, when someone clicks the link to send me an email, you also get a copy of that email. I don't think that's true. I have never seen any of these emails. Um, I mean, I'm certain it's untrue because <laughs> I would remember reading that email. Maybe it's going to your spam or something. But you're on the you're on the list. Huh. I'm looking well, at uh, at the. Uh, in, sure, you got my name spelled right. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to double check, but yeah, right. yeah, right. I'm pretty sure I spelled it right. Okay. Nope, I'm not getting them. Uh, I'm not getting them. I. You get the emails I send you, right? Like I, when I, I, when I, I forward them to you. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't. <laughs> I don't. Email's not really your thing. I mean, have have you forwarded me one recently? No. Because you never wrote back, so I, I suppose, so I stopped. <laughs> I suppose once a long time ago I got an email from you. Well, I'll um, I'll send you some tests after this. All right. Okay. Good. We'll figure. We'll get to the bottom of it. But I, we get a lot of emails from people that are thanking us for the show and, and sharing how much they enjoy it, and uh, we love those. Love those kinds of emails. That's nice. I do like those. Do you feel like the listeners are on the right page with us? Do you think they're asking the kinds of questions that you would? hope they answer yeah i do you know the like is this what you when you when you think of doing the show i know you don't listen to the show but when you're done with the show like what what in your mind is what the listeners are uh supposed to come away uh from with the show do you know what i'm saying like what do you when when you're, you're when you're done what are you hoping that they uh end up feeling you know, a show, a show like this one, or uh, or the one I do with Merlin. I think there. I think the benefit of them, the advantage of them, is that they're long, 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 long conversations that yeah. we've been having for years. Now. Sure. And they're conversations that I mean, we're in these conversations with one another, but also with our listeners. And so there's a lot of energy on the internet. Uh, directed at correcting people and and I think in both in both the um, sort of a, from science oriented people and from culture or, oriented people and from uh, people with a with a strong sense of morality people with very strong political feelings in our country today I think the big problem is that if someone disagrees with you you feel like it's because that person is uneducated in what they need to know. There's no, there's no any more feeling that you can disagree with a person and still uh, and disagree with them within the context that they understand your idea. They understand they've read the books you've read. They understand where you're coming from and they disagree so, so many arguments we have now are from um, certainly liberals love to be very condescending of conservative people and feel like their conservatism or conservatism in general is a product of ignorance 
and that the solution to conservatism, that first of all, conservatism is something that needs a solution and the solution to it is that they need to be educated. And that oh, education right. education can come in the form of extremely pedantic and condescending uh, slow talk like explanation of how things actually are. And of course, you know, conservative people uh, are not persuaded by that. And from the conservative side, there is there is a, a lot of feeling that liberals are boneheaded, mm. that they are brainwashed, that they are um, – that they have a sort of naked self-interest or that they – I think a lot of the feeling from the right is that liberals are just on a power trip, that they get off on forcing people to abandon their – long-held traditions they get liberals get off on forcing laws down people's throats and that it isn't altruistic it is a kind of uh power trip neither viewpoint allows for the fact that these are just genuinely held conclusions that people have come to after in in many cases being exposed to the same information. Mm -hmm. They're just interpreting stuff differently. And what I, what I like about our show is that on the topic of profiling, for instance, last episode, like that is a controversial word, first of all, because it implies a lot of things. It implies a lot of racism. Right. Um, and in a discussion of profiling, like we did last episode, week where I did not completely explain my position. I didn't describe in as great a detail as Jonathan just did this, the, the system that I was admiring. I didn't say that, you know, the kind of, uh, true, but also patronizing line that we should be uh, profiling guys with blonde crew cuts. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't throw in any of that normal stuff that podcasters feel obligated to do where they say, you know, where they go down a checklist of like pre apologies so that people won't yell at them. I didn't do any of that. And yet we didn't get 50 letters from people right. uh, about how profiling is, racist or, you know, it was, we didn't get this torrent of response in the form of people saying, let me educate you about things, right? Because I think longtime listeners of the show realize that that's not the kind of conversation we're having. Sure. And I, and we can talk about profiling and they know I'm not saying everyone in a, in a hijab up against the wall right? that I, that I don't believe that I wouldn't, and I wouldn't suggest it. And that's not what we're talking about. And I think a lot of our listeners are also probably quite aware of how security is done in Tel Aviv, right? There are, our audience is the type of people who would know that already for themselves. So they would hear what I'm saying and go, you know, yeah, I get what you, I get where you're coming from. And I think yeah. Jonathan probably, you know, also knows that I know that stuff. And he was sort of 
maybe offering that email in the form of maybe the listeners would benefit from a, a hearing an inside perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I liked about our letters. There were a few episodes of Roderick on the Line uh, during a period when that podcast was becoming more... Oh, the Blue Angels are flying over. Oh, wow. I don't, I don't know if you can hear them. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, where That's awesome. I was, I was trying to talk about some stuff that was difficult, and I was, I was not as articulate about it as I would li- have liked. And it was during an era when the show had a lot of listeners that maybe were just trying it out. They'd heard about it from their friends. And... You know, I were a couple of uh, one episode in particular that I got a lot of heat in the form of this kind of e- the, the the kind of email that's like, "You are ignorant, and let me educate you on how things are." And it was extremely frustrating because you can't argue with every single person, especially if they start from that premise. Because right, if you write sure. back and say, well, I know, I agree with what you're saying, and I and I just did a poor job of stating it, they're going to come right back at you argumentatively. It's very rare that somebody's like, oh, okay, sorry that I took such a, a strident <laughs> tone. Um, but I think that the, I think largely the people that listen to these shows are, they recognize who we are and and that recognition I mean there are plenty of people that listen to our program that don't agree with me politically or otherwise right but there's uh, but they're getting something out of it that doesn't require that they that they write every week and say once again sir you are incorrect about global warming or you know whatever there we we do have a listener who is a taxi driver in london who was really mad at me about brexit would yell at me about brexit all the time (laughs) because he was pro brexit and i thought brexit was hilarious right and then trump came on the scene and it was like well we're not talking about brexit anymore that was fun fun while it lasted to imagine a time when brexit was the was the craziest political thing that anybody'd seen so that's what i you know that's what I, but I, but I, when email, I like the idea of you filtering emails because I don't want to open mail and get a, get somebody, you know, somebody trying to educate me. Like I, I get a lot of education day in and day out. I don't think I know everything, but like if you're going to educate me, Start off with a paragraph about why the fuck you know more about it than I do. You know what I mean? Right. Like when, what are your qualifications? Yeah. When I used to talk about drone warfare and the moral implications of it on Roderick on the line, I got an email from a man who became my good friend, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Martin, who was a drone pilot. And he was like, I disagree with your conclusions on drone warfare. And I was like, says who? He's like, well, I fly them for a living. I'm like a decorated (laughs) drone pilot. I was like, all right, I'll pull up a chair. Yeah. Like lay it on me. And what it turned out was that Matt and I had different opinions about strategery, right? Like he has, he from within the military has convictions about what the U S military's job is and the, 
efficacy of of our role and and he's he's no dummy he's not uh, he's not somebody who's just repeating the party line he's a deep thinker he's just you know he's playing with the same building blocks i am he's just arranged them in a different order and it was you know the beginning of a of a strong friendship but like if if you're just if you just have a different opinion than me and you want to yell at me about it right um phrase it that way but but don't you know don't come at me like you don't know you know you don't know like show me show me in in a, in one paragraph or less your the OBE behind your name that suggests that you're the you're the expert rather than just somebody that read some different tweets than I did or read the same tweets that I did right and decided you knew better and I think that I think that that's a courtesy I extend to everyone as much as I can you know certainly in person you presume that every that everyone is much more interesting than than they are uh, I mean you presume that everyone is more interesting than they are dull you have to mm-hmm go into every situation because everyone is every single person is more interesting than you expect and knows more than you expect. Even the ladies down in Arizona who are spraying vinegar in the air to, to counteract the chemtrails that they imagine, you know, that because they heard on some talk radio show that vinegar from a spray bottle will purify the chemtrails air, not making this up. You know, I like the, your disclaimer. Even they are delightful, right? I mean, even even that that like the idea of that is delightful, and the fact that they're out there that with vinegar in their in their spray bottle, I mean, it's delightful. Why would I want to? Why would I want to yell at them? Why would I want to tell them that they were wrong rather than just enjoy? I mean, I would sit in a lawn chair out in front of somebody's house in Arizona and watch them spray vinegar water into the air all day. I would never get tired of it. Just asking them questions, chatting. (laughs) Can you imagine, can you imagine feeling so strongly that you needed to tell somebody they were wrong, that you would rob yourself of the, of that, like wonderful afternoon 